So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, let's begin at verse 1. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know that the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready, lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me, and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. First notice that he's talking about the serving or ministering to the saints. As far as what a church is to do, in raising of funds to help those who need it. Notice that it's always the pattern in Scripture that it's for the saints. Here he says, that's clearly what he's talking about, the ministering to the saints. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he had told them on the first day of the week, lay by in store, but he was talking about taking up a collection for the saints. So we need to understand this, the Bible pattern here in a little bit. We're going to take up a collection. And when we do that, if any of those funds are used, it needs to be used for an authority that's found in Scripture. And what we're finding here is the authority to use those uh, generous donations for saints. Now, we need to understand also that as far as what you do as an individual, there's all kinds of ways you could spend money. Those things are not necessarily what the church is authorized to do. So we do need to understand that. Sometimes people get confused on that and they wonder, well, how come the church, when we, when we take up a collection, how come we can't just help anybody out of that uh, collection? Well, you as an individual can make your determination how to do that. But as far as what the church is allowed to do, it's just not that purpose. Let me give you an example of that. Take a different organization that takes up charitable donations. If, Let's say, for example, the Red Cross were to call you on the phone and ask you for a, a donation. And you say, well, what are these funds going to be used for? And they tell you, but then you find out later after you've given to that organization, they're not only giving the money to what they said they were going to use it for, but they're also spending on all kinds of other things that's not really on that on that list. Now, maybe you might in your own mind think, well, I, there's not necessarily anything wrong with uh, helping those other charitable causes as well, but that's not what that donation or collection was for. So if you can understand that, Let's say for another example, someone comes to you and asks you personally, hey, would you be able to spare some extra money because I'm running low on paying my light bill? I, 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 I had this problem and I got laid off at work. Is there any way that you can help me out? They tell you it's so they can pay their light bill, but then you come to find out uh, they don't spend it on the light bill. 
and the, let's say the power gets turned off, you come to find out you gave money to that, but they actually spent the money on something else, but you gave them that so they wouldn't have the lights turned off. Now how do you feel about your donation that you helped them to keep their lights on, but yet they spent it on something else? Well, you can understand these points of view. That's really where the, the point is to try to help you understand. It's not about the church not caring about other people. Sometimes those are accusations that are made to say that if a church doesn't take its funds and use it to help somebody in the community that's, say, not a Christian, sometimes we'll get accused of being stingy or, or being not kind or caring. Well, well no, I don't believe that is at all. I actually believe that Christians should be very generous. And I, I do believe that we as individuals should be willing to help anyone as we have opportunity. Galatians chapter 6 talks about that. But if you notice, that admonition is to individuals. So as individuals, we, as we have opportunity, should be willing to help people, especially those that have the hold of faith. But we could, let's say my neighbor uh, has a... Uh, health issue, and, I, and let's say my neighbor is not a Christian, I could decide out of my own pocket to say, well, I want to help them. Uh, but as far as the church treasure, I just don't believe that that is designed to be an end-all, be-all for every person in the world who needs help. I just don't even think that that's possible for a local congregation. It's just not the purpose of that. So this is why a lot of churches are involved in all sort of perhaps charitable deeds and, and, and things of that like, but yet they're spending those donations on a lot of things that the Bible doesn't give authority for. I, let me give you an example of, of the difference between a church and an individual. In Matthew chapter 18, I think this illustrates this very well. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave an example that if how to handle sin in the lives of others. And what you see here is a difference between a church and an individual. At first, he says in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, first off, these are two brothers. One has sinned against the other, but we don't have the church involved yet. Multiple individuals that are, that are brethren, one has sinned against the other, but notice that he's to tell him alone. You don't need to have the church involved yet. If at all possible, what Jesus is encouraging is there are some matters where the church should not be involved if if that's uh, possible there. That's what he's encouraging. You don't need to go tell all the brethren every time a brother sins against you personally. You don't, you don't even need to bring that before the elders. You don't have to do, do that. What you need to do is, is if they've sinned against you, go to that person privately. That's how he says how to handle that. If he hears you, then the problem is solved. He's repented. 
You've gained your brother. Nobody else needs to know. But if he does not hear you, then take one or two more is what he begins to say in verse 16. But if you will not, he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Notice here that even though you have one or two more involved in it, and that they all may be a part of the same congregation, yet he's not calling that the church yet. The church as a whole is not involved yet. Multiple people, part of the same congregation, perhaps, but not the whole congregation being used here. That's the admonition again. The only reason to bring in one or two more is that you have a, you have a third party that can help hear the case between two, and they can be able to uh, help the, the two sort this out. The one who has sinned hopefully will hear that, you know, this is not just this person's emotions because it's between the two, but somebody else that it doesn't involve has heard the case and says, okay, yeah, you need to repent. You need to make this right. That's the whole point. But then in verse 17, if he shall neglect to hear them tell it unto the church. So notice that the church is not involved until after those other steps are made. I think this is a great illustration to show there's a difference between an individual or even multiple brethren, but not necessarily the whole church as a collective being used. Similarly, coming back to the giving issue, there may be one or two or multiple brethren who are perhaps a part of the same congregation who might be giving to something, but not necessarily that that's the church's funds used in that activity. We could decide as multiple people, hey, let's... Uh, who wants to get together and let's have a, a meal at my house? You bring this dish. Hey, will you bring a dish? People are contributing. Multiple people are contributing. Who maybe happen to be members of the same congregation, but that's not a church collective activity. Does that make sense? I hope, hope I'm trying to make that point so in second corinthians 9 when he's talking about ministering to the saints every case in scripture where the giving of a church the church is involved in that collective activity of helping those who are needy it's always the saints never to those outside of the faith but individuals are certainly doing that i mean you have the case of the the good samaritan and he helps his neighbor. In that case, the Good Samaritan doesn't say, no, I've already gave to a church, so let's let the church help you poor fellow that's in the ditch. No, he helped out of his own pocket, and then he helped bind up his wounds. He put him in the inn, and then if there was any else that needed to be made, he said, I will pay it when I come back through if I owe any more. Now, that's a generous case of an individual helping out of his own pocket and not using the church. So there are some times. And so all the cases where if, if we were going to help someone who's not a Christian, that needs to be from individuals' funds. 
could be even from multiple individuals who've decided to do that. But it should not be used out of the church's treasury just because here's where it boils down to. If we just simply find one example in Scripture anywhere of a church supporting that, it needs to, we need to find the book, chapter, and verse for it. Just give me one example of a church using its funds in that collection to help those outside of the faith. And once you've provided that, okay, there's the authority. But until that, well, every case where we find it, it it's, it's always for the saints whenever there is a, a, a helping from the collection that a church does. So he's talking about for the saints. So I wanted to make that point. Second notice that they had been ready when they had talked about this before. They, there was some planning involved in it. There were some who had stated, obviously, that they were willing to do this. So it is a, it is a free will offering. It's not a fundraising, selling as a church collective. What you didn't see is Paul saying, what y'all need to do is you need to sell cookies and you need to sell um, uh, food. You need to set up a, a bake sale stand and 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 put the name of the church's uh, of the church on the sign, and then raise the funds that way. No, what they were doing is they were simply giving of their own heart. It's a free will offering. Every time funds were raised by a church, that's the pattern in Scripture: is by free will offering, not selling. A church is not a business. A church is not in the uh, money-making uh, side of things. You could go into real estate and open up a company. You could open up a store of, and, and sell goods that way of your own doing. You could even partner with multiple people and do something like that out of what you do. But as far as what a church is supposed to do, the, the pattern I see in Scripture is always that a church does this by their free will. I, I hope that this is helping to understand if anyone's ever had questions about why we believe that this is how you ought to use the funds here at Westview and why that might be different than, say, other churches, the way they may spend money from their treasury. If you've got any more questions about that, certainly ask me. We'll be willing to sit down with you and, and look at that. But notice also that this church, who was ready to help because of the needy saints, they had a, an enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm about helping their brethren became contagious. Do you notice that in verse 2, that he says, Your zeal has provoked very many. Isn't that interesting how if you see a, your brethren who want to do well and help their brethren, well, that becomes like, like it will spread. Other people care about this now. You, they see that you care about it, and then others will want to be involved in that. That's what we want. Then notice in verse 3 that Paul is expecting his brethren there at Corinth to do well. I believe there's something we can learn here. 
that we want to think of the best of our brethren. I think, in, you know, it, it could be easy to think the worst. Think, well, you know, they probably ain't going to do anything, you know, and you start complaining. And Sometimes this happens where brethren are, there's like a little bit of an undercurrent where they start uh, murmuring, complaining about things that are not done to some people's satisfaction we got to guard against that because we don't really need that sowing of discord or that kind of, of thing. If we see that something is a need and we're not fulfilling that, then let's say, well, how can we help this? Rather than making a complaint and, and starting some kind of a rift, it'd be much better to encourage the activity that needs to take place. And then what Paul is doing is he's saying, I know you're going to do this. To me, that's more powerful and more positive of a way of thinking, knowing that if brethren are bound by the principles of Scripture and they, they know the, the grace that God's given to them and the blessings that God has bestowed to them, and if you understand that your brethren know this and they, they are thankful for the sacrifice of Christ and, and all of God's gifts that He does to us, then expect that your brethren are going to understand giving more than anybody else and that your brethren are going to be a giving people. And I, I think that tells something about Paul's attitude towards these brethren in Corinth. That, to me, that's just a better way of thinking about our brethren, expecting that our brethren are going to do well. Now notice verse 4 lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. What he's really now saying is that, you know, it'd be kind of embarrassing if I've talked about how generous the brethren there are in Corinth and, and, and I've told people, you know, that they're going to they're gonna help out and then now we come to find out they're not even willing. They said they were before, but now they don't. That would be... Uh, somewhat embarrassing. So then in verse 5, he says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and, and not as of covetousness. Bounty, bountiful gift, uh, a willing gift, that's what some of the other translations say. What Paul is now doing is to ensure, to make sure that this happens, he's sending brethren ahead of time to make sure that this need is met. He wants them to be informed. He wants to make sure that everybody's ready and so that whenever he can uh, make that happen so the brethren need that, that need that help will get it. And he doesn't want them to give this in a grudging way. When he talks about covetousness, some of the other translations say grudgingly given. He, he doesn't want them to be browbeaten. This is not a thing of that they are pressured so much to the point that they're guilt-driven in order to do it. Paul is motivating them, don't get me wrong. He is giving them reasons why they need to give, but at the same time, and as, as we'll see in a moment, the kind of giving needs to be done willingly. 
Because he says in verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall, shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he hath purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So here we have the principle of reaping and sowing. That's a motivation. You want a bigger uh, harvest? Well, you've got to plant more seed. You want a bigger blessing? Well, then give more. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And God gives us these promises of blessing the givers. God is a great giver, and He wants us to follow His example. Well, you reap in proportion to what you sow. You reap more than what you sow, but you reap in proportion. If you only sow a little seed, you're going to have a little harvest. You sow a lot of seed, you have a bigger harvest. So we get that point. So how much you give can determine how much you're blessed. But also this is a, there is an, an ability factor that not everybody has the same of. I don't think that God expects a person who is in a better financial situation to you give the exact same amount as someone else who is in a much more difficult situation. Maybe they have more some have more responsibility, more people to think about. Maybe perhaps their situation is more dire or 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 each person has their own unique situation, and you would know that and know your own better than anybody else. And so Paul is encouraging for each to determine that of their own. I can't set an amount that you ought to give whenever you decide to give. I, I don't think that would be right for me to do. I don't, Paul's not doing that with them. He's an apostle. I'm not an apostle. So I don't think it would be right for me to, or anybody else, to set a specific amount for another person. But I believe that each should determine that based upon their ability. So there's some of this that is indiv it's individual when it's in your own power for you to determine that. But then whenever you decide when you do, you should do it cheerfully. There is a, an attitude that God also wants not just the physical amount. And he taught this whenever he observed the widow. When Jesus sat over against the, tre the treasury, it appears that in that particular circumstance that they had a box of some sort. And as people walked in, they would put their money in that box or that collection. And Jesus was sitting near it, and he's observing how they're giving. Well, obviously, some are giving more than others. And you never know a person's motivation and why they give, but Jesus would. But he noticed that the amount that the woman who was a widow gave was very small in its amount. But Jesus acknowledged that what she gave was more than the others because they gave of their abundance, and she gave all she had. So God does acknowledge that. 
I do find it interesting that sometimes some who are in a more difficult circumstance sometimes are willing to give a higher percentage of what they have because they get this point and, and that they are very good at, at their generosity. And they're not doing it to be seen. They're not doing it because it's a, a matter of boasting or you know, bragging rights. But they do it because they want to. They want to be able to give what they can. Obviously, that would be the best way to do it. And so Paul is encouraging that, that God loves a cheerful giver. I, th I think this attitude can be translated in a lot of the things that we do. Is it good that we came here today to hear an extra lesson? I think that's good. It's even better if we come enthusiastically because we want to. You know, obviously, there's a big difference in coming out of duty, which is fine. Sometimes you have to make yourself do the things you're supposed to do, and you're not always in the perfect mood to do that. And so I respect those who are willing to do the right thing, even whenever they're not in the best natural spirit to do that. But at the same time, I think it's even better, and this is what Paul is saying, it's what God likes, what he wants, is those who do it because they want to. You could today have it in mind, I'm, I need to have a, a Bible reading plan. It's the beginning of the year. Let's start a new plan. Let's, let's do it right. I think that would be one of the best goals you could have if you don't have that already, to have a daily Bible reading plan. But we could take two scenarios. You could read it out of duty and feel guilty. If you don't, like a checklist thing, I've got that. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've met that requirement. And so now I feel better about myself that I read so many verses today. Or you could do it in a way to say, you know, I hunger and I thirst after righteousness and I want to know what God's will is for me. Well, we obviously know which one of those is better. And the one who has that kind of hunger and wants to know it, has to know it, and does it because they want to. And as they're reading, they're reading this. These are the words of God. And they want to know God's will in their life. That kind of a person is going to be more rewarded. And that's the kind of person God is going to be more pleased with because they're doing it from the heart and not just outwardly. Same thing when we sing in a moment. You know, you could sing, you, could, you can have the, the notes right, you could have the pitch right, you have the tempo right. It does make it easier whenever those things are right. But at the same time, let's say all of that is not exactly right, but the heart is there. Which one is God going to be more pleased with? God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. To do the right thing, but do it in the right attitude. I believe that's what God wants. This is the same principle here. I believe that can translate in any act of worship that we do, whether it's praying, singing, giving, preaching, listening to preaching, or any other act that we're doing, to do it out of the love and because we want to. It's just more beautiful that way. And God acknowledges givers. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. 
As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. God acknowledges givers. And do you know that whenever you give, God acknowledges that it's like you're giving to him. It says that he who despises the poor despises his maker. That's interesting. If I'm looking down on someone who has less than me, like a a snobbish way, and I'm thinking that he's lesser in importance because he has less than me, then I am reproaching my maker who made everyone. And at the same time, if I'm doing good to others, Jesus will say on the judgment day, Inasmuch as you've done it in the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So he acknowledges our good deeds that we do to each other as if it's done to him. Not only that, he's he's quoting from Psalm 112 in verse 9. And he's talking about in that psalm a righteous man, a righteous man who fears God. And what does a righteous man do? Well, he... Uh, he gives and shares, he disperses to the poor. I think there's an important principle that even in the first century, if you read in Acts 2 and in the early chapters of the book of Acts, that whenever those Christians first obeyed the gospel, they did it with a cheerfulness and they, they each had all things in common. They didn't think of the things they possessed as their own. There was a sharing in that. And then in verse 10 of Second Corinthians 9, he says, Now he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Well, the one who ministers seed to the sower, well, that's God. God who provides those things for you. Whenever you are willing to share that, God can increase the supply, increase more opportunities to the person who's willing to share. And if we could think about it that way, that the the more that I'm able to be blessed with, the more opportunities that gives me and you to be able to do good and share that with others. Verse 11, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. And then verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men, and by their prayer for you which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. What we see here is that God helps those and especially he honors those who are doing this in a way that glorifies him. We need to think about it that way. Let's say we're able to be in a position to be able to give more. That's not in order to build us up in our and make our heads swell, but that's in order to honor God. It's, it's because of what God has done and blessed us with to be able to be able to then... Uh, 
follow in the same path and pay that forward. And then he ends in verse 15, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. What a, probably one of the best ways that I could think of to encourage giving is to start or e- even end as Paul does here with this idea is that God is the best giver. Look at what God has given you and it's worth way more than money could ever, doesn't even compare. Can't put a price tag on the gift that God has given us in forgiving us of our sins, giving us life, giving his son so that we can be right with him. And if God's done that and given us way more than we can ever repay, how much is it to ask that we would be willing to share a little of our funds to help our brethren whenever they need it? That's Paul's admonition on that. I appreciate your attention. Thank you, and we'll take a break.